Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today, my longtime friend, Lee P., shares his fascinating story in this, the 43rd episode in this podcast series. Lee was born and raised in London, where his early adolescent experience with alcohol began in the public houses or pubs. These establishments were and still are the centers of gathering in the town where Lee grew up. Despite the fact that he was underage, having a pint or two of beer at the pub was an unremarkable occurrence, largely ignored by those around him. As he came of age, Lee's drinking in and outside of pubs escalated above and beyond the realm of normal drinking, and he quickly found himself drinking much more than his mates. Like many budding problem drinkers, he became a functional alcoholic, achieving scholastic success by day while drinking and often blacking out during the evenings and on weekend binges. By the time he was well into his first job after college, Lee's drinking had become problematic and obvious to everyone but him. After moving to Texas early in his career in the oil industry, his daily alcohol consumption and blackouts were mostly managed though his first marriage succumbed to the ruinous effects of alcoholism. But the moniker of functional alcoholic faded quickly as his drinking spiraled out of control. Finally, after a two-week blackout, he awoke, strapped down to a psychiatric hospital gurney, and realized he was finished. A visit shortly thereafter by a responsible fellow of AA coincided with a brief interval of clarity for Lee. He soon found his way into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. He started doing the work, and the results followed. In many ways, Lee's story is cut from the same cloth as many recovering alcoholics, and his 26 years of sobriety reflect the very fundamentals of AA. Whether his service work was taking AA into prisons or working with sponsees, Lee combined those commitments with regular attendance at AA meetings to create a program centered in the middle of the bed, as many of my British friends like to call it. As you take in Lee's simple yet practical wisdom for working the program, I think you'll sense his quiet confidence that his higher power is indubitably running the show. Though it's the product of 26 years in AA, Lee's story may likely inspire and invigorate your experience in the program, no matter how long you've been sober. With that, I give you today's AA Recovery Interviews guest for the next 65 minutes, Lee P. My name is Lee, and I'm alcoholic. Thanks, Lee. So good to have you here today. I haven't seen you in person in, what, a year and a half? A year and a half since COVID. Yeah, that's amazing how much time has gone by. And I like the opportunities that you and I had to share person to person when we went to the AA retreats that you and I went to. Holy name. Now, yours is not quite a Southern accent. What? <laughs> well, originally I'm from East Texas, <laughs> but no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's quite a bit east of Texas, actually. Uh -huh. and, um, I'm originally from the UK. Uh, I was born and raised uh, in England, in London. Went to school there. And uh, when I left school, a company in the oil and gas industry offered me a contract oh. to come over to the United States. And so through many, many different stories, I ended up staying. 
So you've been sober 26 years. 26. My sobriety date is March the 8th of 1995. So uh, I just turned 26 uh, in March. Congratulations on that. That's an amazing accomplishment. I've heard parts of your story in the past. So 25 and a half years ago, what was happening in your life that was pointing you in the direction of AA? I'm not sure that uh, I was aware that I was being pointed in the direction of AA, but uh, Uh I'm certainly glad that uh, I ended up that way. Um, I would say that my drinking had gotten much, much worse in the preceding four or five years until I walked through the doors. Mm -hmm. I am not one of those people that was an alcoholic right off the bat. I had many years of hard drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were some consequences with that hard drinking, but uh, it wasn't until the last five years when I started having blackouts Mm -hmm. that my drinking kind of fell off of the cliff. Mm. Um, I had to drink every day, otherwise I wouldn't be able to function. And if I didn't have alcohol in my system, uh, my body would react in a very um, unpleasant way. I would get the shakes. Was that a gradual change that happened for you, or was that kind of one day you woke up and uh, you were starting to black out when you drank? Uh, the line that I crossed for the blackout was uh, immediate. It was one Christmas Eve, and I had, really? I had told myself yet again that I did not want to drink, and I had managed to string mm-hmm. a couple of days together. And I went out uh, to a party on uh, Christmas Eve, and I don't remember the next couple of days, the next 48 hours, really, when I came to that uh, uh, Mm. I'd woken up in my house and uh, didn't really remember much about anything. And that was the first time I had a blackout. Mm. So um, I think from that point on, for the next five years, it was a a rapid decline um, physically and uh, obviously the emotional and spiritual turmoil and damage that goes with that was right hand hand in hand. Were you told about what happened during that 48 hours? I was not. um, My belief is that, uh, you know, I had somehow struggled home um, and passed out on the floor and um, probably started drinking again when I came to and then passed out again and Mm. another day had passed uh, when I finally kind of came to my senses. That was kind of a pattern in those Mm -hmm. last five years. Uh, I was isolated. Um, My daughter's mother Mm -hmm. had had enough and uh, I was living by myself. And so there Mm -hmm. wasn't really anybody to keep an eye on me. And so there was nobody to fill in those gaps. So we're talking about a period about 30 years ago that this was starting to happen for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't really remember the first half of the 90s. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> How long had you been in the U.S. by the time that rolled around? Let's see. I came to the U.S. in the end of 76. So I got sober uh-huh. in 95. Okay. So what is that? That's uh, uh, 19 years. Um, yeah. 19 I, I mean, years. I was a young man right out of school when I got here. And so mm-hmm. for the next 19 mm-hmm. years, um, you know, my drinking went from, uh, I don't think it was ever social. It was always fairly heavy, but uh, mm-hmm. it was my coping mechanism, Howard. It was it was the way I dealt with um, mm-hmm. 
mistakes. It was the way I dealt with sadness. It was the way I dealt with almost every emotion that I didn't want to feel. Um, but it was also that, you know, feel good thing. I tried to, uh, I liked the euphoria that it brought, and I liked the, you know, Bill calls it the conviviality, mm-hmm. right? And I love that. I love the clink of the glasses and, um, you know, neon lights. I mean, mm-hmm. there was an atmosphere that went with the drinking that I was also enamored of. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, I went through those earlier years, as I say, heavily drinking with minor consequences. There was, um, minor scrapes and minor uh, brushes with the law but nothing too Mm -hmm. damaging where it couldn't be repaired at that time was that a cultural uh sort of thing i mean from the standpoint of when you were younger Hmm. pubs in great britain people end up there as their main social gathering spot what was your experience with pubs as you were growing up I think you summed it up absolutely correctly. Uh, it's a social gathering. It's where people meet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's where um, friendships are made. It is where um, young men go to uh, let off steam and meet young ladies. Um, their families sometimes go. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes beer gardens out in the back where uh, families can sit mm-hmm. and the uh, adults can drink and the, the kids can drink sodas. Mm-hmm. Um over the years, they've added mm-hmm. food, and they have these things called gastropubs now. But it's very much a social, mm-hmm. uh, social place to enjoy each other's company, um, to enjoy alcohol. In fact, you know, sometimes I've, I've often joked that we we tell we give directions. I mean, directions using pubs. It's like you go down to the Green Man, turn mm-hmm. left, mm-hmm. Uh, go down a mile, and make a right at the King's Head, <laughs> and uh, you know that kind of um, popularity, if you will, that kind of acceptance of, of a pub as being an English tradition certainly played a large part of my early life. Uh, my father, in fact, uh, frowned upon pubs because his father was an alcoholic. And so my father didn't drink, uh-huh. although he had all the isms. Um, but we were kind of tried to push us away from going to pubs, but my brother and I kind of rebelled against that. And so we ended up going to more pubs uh-huh. because of his disapproval. But most people in England do a lot of uh, socializing in pubs. Yeah, I get that. So your grandfather was an alcoholic. Did you know him when you were growing up? I did not. He had died before I had been born. But mm-hmm. the stories that I've heard from not just my dad, but my, my dad's older brothers indicate to mm-hmm. me he was a very violent, abusive man. He was also an inveterate gambler. Mm-hmm. He spent a lot of our family finances. Um, used to beat my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father witnessed this as a young, he was the youngest, he was the baby of the family. And so, uh, you know, over the years I've, I've come to terms with the fact that my father grew up in a terrible environment mm-hmm. and that was all he knew and that kind of transcended to our own upbringing and, you know, I, I, I had to work mm. long and hard on my relationship with my father um, way after he had passed away, actually. Uh, yeah, he passed away about when I was about a year and a half sober. And in about four or five years, I started to do some in-depth family of origin work. I see. Both through uh, Al-Anon and uh, Children of Alcoholics. Um, because, as I say, he didn't drink very mm. much, but uh, he sure had all the isms. Yeah. Did you find some clarity and uh, understanding? Was that experience in Al-Anon and ACA, what kind of impact did that have on you? 
Oh, it was very enlightening um, because when I got sober, one of the things that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is we do our fourth steps, correct? Mm-hmm. And so that first couple of fourth steps that I, I did, um, I took on a lot of the responsibility for um, things that had gone along wrong with our family mm-hmm. um, and rightly so there are a lot of things I had done wrong mm-hmm. in fact I I was off the grid for a couple of yeah. years my parents did not know where I was uh, they actually got in contact with the Washington Embassy hmm. who got in contact with the FBI and I, I had a kind of a you know where is this guy have you seen this man and so it wasn't there were things that I had done that I was very ashamed and guilty mm-hmm. of. And so when I first got sober, I did those four steps and, and attributed much of the blame to my to my own behaviors. And, and I needed to do that. Yeah. But as I continued with sobriety and kind of looked at some things that were becoming apparent to me, I realized that I wasn't particularly... Mm-hmm to blame for everything that had gone on in their family. And I had to kind of categorize which things I needed to take responsibility for and which things I needed to say, you know yeah. what, that wasn't me and, and I'm sure my dad did his best, my mother did her best, but those were things that they brought to the table and that, you know, it had inflicted on my brother yeah. and I. Uh, my brother more so than I, mm-hmm. but because uh, uh, he got the brunt. Uh, I left. I left home at seventeen, and uh, my brother was left behind. And uh, again, he's three years younger than I am. And funny thing is, is he's not an mm. alcoholic. Uh, he has other issues. I think he has bipolar uh, disorder, but uh, undiagnosed. But he does not abuse alcohol. He likes to drink, but uh, he is not an alcoholic. It's uh, very strange. In your family of origin, you just mentioned about your father and his experience. Were his siblings uh, affected? Do you have uncles and aunts that uh, became alcoholics? And what do you know about the extended family that your dad had? Mm, That's a great question. Uh, My dad was a very secretive man. Mm -hmm. He did not talk about his family of origin. Uh, I got much of my knowledge about my grandfather from his brothers. My My dad was the youngest brother, the youngest of seven. So he was the seventh son, I believe, of the seventh son, as well as what they say. So Mm. he was babied. He was looked after by his older brothers. Um, But his older brothers, I didn't really see any signs of alcoholism as a kid, but I don't think that I would have been aware of what they might be. I know they all like to drink. Mm -hmm. I know that every one of them would like to go to the pub and enjoy enjoy alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether they any of them were alcoholic, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them uh, lived until their 70s or their 80s. So that kind of doesn't lend itself to alcoholism in full flight. Uh, so I, I honestly don't know the answer to that, Howard. I think a lot of my understanding of my dad's family is skewed in some way. And my brother and I have talked about this a lot. We don't know much about my dad's early days and his youth. And mm. the stories that we know um, apparently are very different from the stories that my uncles could have told if they were still alive. Um, they're all dead. So there was a, there was there is something in in my father's history that we don't know that is very mysterious and uh, something that uh, my mother doesn't even know. I have asked my mother several times, and and she has no idea of what my father's mm. life was like before he met her. So it's mm. it's very odd. 
and uh, I don't suppose we'll ever get the answer. And your mom, your mom is still, uh, she's still alive? She is. She's 92 years old. Wow. She lived up in, t- in by herself uh, up until recently, um, but she had fallen mm-hmm. and broken uh, um, femur. And so mm-hmm. had to be admitted to hospital. And is right now she's living in an assisted living, but wants to go home. So I'm going to have to fly home here in the, you know, dealing with COVID in some way uh, at some point uh, in the near future. So. so she's back in the UK yeah. and is your brother there as well? Yes, he is. He lives, uh, he lives in central London. My mother lives on the outskirts of London. Have you asked her about or have you sat down with her and tried to get an idea about what was going on when you were young in the house? Uh, Yes, we we have. My brother and I have both sat down with her, and um, Uh we've asked her in a nice way. We've sometimes cajoled her to talk about Mm -hmm. you know our early lives. Um, But my mother lives in a world of denial um, and and almost delusional. Mm -hmm. My brother and I both remember incidents that happened in our childhood that my mother refuses to acknowledge. Uh, mm. There was one particular incident I can remember vividly, and it involved physical abuse. And, and my my father blacked her eye, and she had to wear sunglasses. Mm. We were actually on vacation when this occurred, mm-hmm. and I asked her about this. Not in fact, the last time I went home, my brother and I were sitting there, and we were talking about it, and she said that didn't happen, mm. and. I was certainly old enough and my brother was old enough to know that it actually did happen. It wasn't that we were making this up. It wasn't that this was something that could have happened or we saw it wrong. This was an event that left an indelible scar for me anyway, and I believe also for my brother. And she refuses Mm. to even entertain the idea that some of these things happen. She has put my dad, I mean, he's always, he, he was 13 years older than she was. He was the first father mm-hmm. figure she knew. She didn't know her own mm-hmm. father. He had abandoned mm-hmm. his family when my mother was two months old. Then the war came along. She was sent out of London during the Blitz. Um, so mm-hmm. she never had a male role model in her life. And my dad comes along and he was very charming and very attractive and uh, he, he mm. swept her off her feet and uh, he was the older man and uh, they had yeah. a parental child relationship for 45 years before he died. My dad wow. did not let my mother have a checkbook. And, and I remember when my father passed away, flying back home a year and a half sober, teaching my mother how to write a checkbook so she could pay her bills. So there were, he was a very controlling individual. He was very strict. He was very, you know, he wanted to make sure everybody did things his way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my mother put him on a pedestal and um, she held that kind of belief with him um, even after he died and so in fact after he died he could do no wrong you could not say anything bad about my father so it made it very difficult for me to go to her and say you know I'm looking for clarification here I'm looking for some kind of answers Uh, because she just really did not want to talk about it she had her image of him and that was her coping mechanism and I decided after asking her the last time that I was just going to leave it alone because I was not going to get any any answers and anything that yeah. she was going to have to dredge out was going to upset her so much that it you know seemed to be selfish on my part 
to make that happen. So, you know, I had to make yeah. peace and, and acceptance, right? Acceptance is the key. So I had to accept the fact that I probably am never going to find out the answers. That's tough. Gaining no satisfaction from any corroboration is frustrating. So, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate, but it gives us the opportunity to learn to come to terms with stuff that we can't can't have had any power to change back then and we certainly don't today except for how we live with it. So, how old were you when you started drinking in earnest? Uh, I started drinking when I was 13. Uh, I think I started drinking in earnest at 16. Uh-huh. I used to be able to drink in a pub. Uh, at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the legal age is 18, but they were very lax about it. Uh, drinking's very, or it was very accepted when I was a, a teenager. Um, yeah, you were yeah. expected to go into the pubs uh, as a 16, 17 year old, and nobody checked your ID. It wasn't, you, we didn't carry ID in, in England back then. You weren't, you weren't required uh-huh. to have an identification on you if you looked old enough to drink then they would serve you behind the bar and, uh, so <laughs> yeah. yeah so 13 was my first taste and uh, the euphoria that came with that is is never been forgotten and then over the next few years I, I stole it where I could I uh, you know we had uh, one young lad that was old enough to actually uh, go into a what they call an off license which is a little store uh-huh. on the side of a pub where they sell to the public to take home and he he Asked for an adult, uh, a young adult, and so he'd go in there and and buy uh, a quart of hard cider, which was one of our favourites, uh-huh. uh, or a couple uh-huh. of bottles of beer. Um, so mm-hmm. then we would steal liquor from the liquor cabinet and water it down, just as mm. everybody else probably did. Mm-hmm. And so then I started managing to actually walk into a pub by myself, you know, as as a young man, and then I would go with my friends mm-hmm. and. We would we would have a few drinks and go about our merry way, and so there was also this, as I say, sense of uh, of well being that came with drinking. It wasn't just the physical euphoria; there was the social aspect and the uh, pleasantries that that go with bonding as a youth to other young young men, uh, getting high on yeah. life, I would say, and that was part of it. So it's very romantic. I mean, anytime I see the British, and my wife and I love to watch the the BBC and the ITC shows. We we love them. We we have Brit Box. We watch mm-hmm. them all. And it's such a huge part of any of any storyline is going into the pubs. And do you recall when you were going to the pubs with your friends, any particular person or people who were overdoing it, who might have been candidates for alcoholism at that time? Or what what notice did you take of heavy drinking and drunkenness when you were that age? At that time, I didn't notice anything amiss with any of my friends and that's borne Mm -hmm. out by the fact that of the people that I was close to in high school or our equivalent of high school I go back and I Mm -hmm. visit with them and not Mm -hmm. one of them besides me is an alcoholic they just I, I go meet them in a pub uh-huh. And they will they will whip have a whip round and everybody will put ten pounds into a, a jug and they'll go buy whatever that buys and they ask me what I want to drink and I say well I have a soda water or a diet coke or something uh-huh. and I am the only one that ended up with alcoholism and that's my high school friends now as my drinking progressed 
I have noticed that the friends that I associated with later in my early 20s and certainly my 30s, um, a lot of them did become alcoholics. So it's like uh, the book says we seek love and companions, and and I don't know if there's a correlation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, my drinking and the friends I had uh, getting worse mm-hmm. over the years and my friends becoming more alcoholic prone if that makes any sense at all so in my in my yeah. teens the people I was friends with none of them were affected with alcoholism um, mm-hmm. in my 20s there were a few mm-hmm. um, my college you know my university friends a couple of those were, uh, mm-hmm. were definitely showed signs of alcoholism mm-hmm. and then by my 30s when I was over here in the US um, there's a couple of my friends who have since died of alcoholism. And so yeah. there is that progression of my friendships that go right along with the progression of my use of alcohol. Did you notice when you were in the pubs drinking with your friends, I'm assuming that none of them became alcoholics because they none of them were probably very heavy drinkers. Did you lay off becoming a heavy drinker because of being around them and their behavior? Or did you just forge ahead with drinking as much as you can, as quick as you can? What was your style of drinking back in those days? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I used to drink a little bit of beer, not much. Um, mm-hmm. I liked scotch, and I drank mm-hmm. a little bit of that, and some frilly drinks like vodka and lime juice. Um, I guess a precursor to sure. a margarita, which I didn't really know what a margarita was back then. But uh, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I mean, I I liked to drink, but it was something I could still leave alone at that point. Plus, I'm living at home. Um, so when I'm in high school, I'm living at home, so I'm confined to my access and to my uh, accountability to mm-hmm. you know, not get caught by my parents. And so there were yeah. there were restrictions on the amount and the way I could drink, which kind of fit mm. pretty well with where I was with it. Now, when I went to college, yeah. the restrictions all all evaporated there were no more restrictions then i was Mm. in the soccer club we drank very heavily with the rugby club we um, Mm -hmm. you know we had we actually had two bars in our in our (laughs) in our union building in on campus so Uh alcohol was free and easy it was easy to come by and that's when i think we started to get drunk on a regular frequency um i remember one Mm. particular gentleman he was a star rugby player and i came out of one of the union bars one night and he was lying half in an elevator and half out of an elevator and the elevator doors were closing (laughs) on him and hitting him in the midriff and realizing that it were blocked and then opening again and going through the cycle over and over again. And I saw his bruises the next day. He had bruises all the way around his midriff. But he was so passed out, he didn't even realize this was happening. And we just left him there. So there was this idea that, you know, drinking was fun. It was was balls to the wall and, and... Nobody was accountable to anybody. Yeah. And if you went, it was like if you didn't go to class the next day, nobody said, oh, you didn't show up. It's like you just didn't get a grade if you didn't, if you kept it up. So there was nobody to be accountable to. No, not, not one yeah. person. And so that kind of, that kind of exacerbated it. 
I get that. That was kind of my experience, too. I, I went to a state university that was very much a, a party school. And once I was there, it, it was the way of mm-hmm. life. And to get into the college experience meant doing that all the time, every day. And I don't ever remember, with the exception of one or two times, ever having anything that occurred that had consequences attached to it. Did you have any situations where you got in trouble, or would that come later? That really came much later. There were a couple of incidents that um, happened in college, but they were more behavioral issues that I don't think were really... I could blame on alcohol. Were drugs a part of that picture at all? Uh, in England at the time, it was very difficult to get drugs. I, uh, I experimented really? with pot at that time. Uh, there was LSD was available. Um, Mandy's were available. Um, right. But uh, things like heroin and cocaine were never really part of that uh, university life when I went. Now, that, I understand, well, changed drastically in later years. But uh, sure. it was, and sure. thank God, because God knows what would happen to me if I'd come across those particular substances in my formative years. Um, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. by the time I got out of college, you know, alcohol was my drug of choice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would smoke a little dope, but I, it mm-hmm. wasn't really my thing. And so when I got to the U.S., yeah. um, drinking was legal, uh, drinking was expected. I went into an industry where everybody drank. Um, yeah. And so I just carried on with alcohol. And so over the years, I'd come across some of these other things, but had really very little interest in experimenting with them. I mean, I did from time mm. to time, but uh, they never had the hold on me that alcohol did. And it's very strange because you would think that yeah. as an addictive kind of a personality that I have, that I would I would fall, um, you know, fall prey to those substances. But... For whatever reason, I was fortunate enough never to become hooked on any of those substances. And it was alcohol that took yeah, me down. That's... And it was a long, slow descent. And as I say, up until those last five years, I was managing to get by. Yeah. So in 1976, when you came to, when you left the UK to come to the US, where did you <laughs> land? Where, where were you first? Uh... I landed in Lafayette, Louisiana. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So it was out of the frying pan and into the fire. um, Because, uh, you know, the the people in Lafayette, bless them, I love them. Um, They were as much of a kind of crazy party animals as uh, I had been used to uh, dealing with back in the UK. And so... uh, Mm. Yeah, they like to they like to play too. So uh, certainly in the oil business and uh, uh, in that neck of the woods, uh, there were no holds barred. And so there was there was seamless. It was like you come to the come to the U.S. from the U.K. and you just keep going. What did your drinking behavior look like? Let's say from the time you got here in '76, where did it ramp up to before it leveled off? If it ever leveled off, or where did it ramp up to before you actually stepped off the cliff? For a long time, I drank uh, because uh, it was the party-type environment. Right. It was, let's go out and have a good time. Uh-huh. If you went to a restaurant, you would want to get a bottle of wine mm-hmm. or drink margaritas. If you went to a party, you would take a bottle of Jack Daniels. Right. 
Um, I don't really remember that I had a whole lot of alcohol in the apartments at home at that point. It was more of a going out type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, um, it was more for enjoyment, social activities, and just being wild. I put, let's put it down under that category. Mm-hmm. But what I've come to believe and what I've understood about my own journey is that I used alcohol for a lot of different things. Mm. The only f- time my father actually would let us drink alcohol was when we were sick as, as teenagers. He would give us a hot toddy with honey sure. and, and hot water mm-hmm. and uh, lemon and a little, little slug of scotch. Right. Um, and so medicinally, I thought it was something that, uh, you know, it, it was my medicine. And it was also... N- not to realize is it, it became my coping mechanism. Um, I don't think I had ever experienced failure up until I was um, in my mid 20s. Mm. Everything that, you know, even though I was raised in a um, less than perfect environment at home, um, I had succeeded in school, mm-hmm. I had succeeded athletically. I had succeeded in my early career, sure. really. I had left home, come to the U.S. I had I was running a crew of six men um, on oil rigs at a very early mm-hmm. age. So, I, you know, the world was my oyster, as I like to say. But I had never experienced a failure mm. and went through a marriage and a divorce in my 20s. And it was at the end of my 20s when the wheels came off the wagon. And I had absolutely no way of coping with that divorce. And so Hmm. the answer for me was just jump into the bottle. And I don't consciously remember saying I'm going to do that, but that's what I did. How long were you married for there at that point? Three and a half years. Was drinking a part of that marriage for the two of you? Oh, very much so. But again, more party than using as a crutch. Uh But once that marriage had ended, um, I relied on alcohol to uh, soothe my soothe my pain, uh, mm-hmm. to get me through the day, mm-hmm. to deal with the, the idea that I had not been able to succeed at something, that I had not mm. been perfect at something, that I had not mm. managed to make this thing work. And, mm. you know, it, it went downhill rapidly from there. So by the time my 30s rolled around, now I'm using alcohol to null pain, to have a good time. I'm using alcohol pretty much for everything. Um, mm. And so for the next nine years until I got sober, mm-hmm. my alcohol use increased. Um, I'm a daily drinker, which I had not become up until that point. Mm-hmm. But somewhere around the age of 34, 35, I experienced that first blackout. And mm-hmm. from that point on, it was nothing else mattered. I lost my job. I wrecked a car. I had a DWI. Mm-hmm. Just things. I, like I said, I, I disappeared off the grid. My parents did not know where I was. Yeah, I, it got pretty bad pretty quick uh, in my mid-30s. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. The marriage that you had, were there any children involved? There were not. Thankfully, we, we did not have any children, and I, I, I had very little to do with her in subsequent years. The only uh, contact I had with her at one point was she was she was a Catholic and she wanted uh-huh. to have the marriage annulled way down the road. In fact, I had just got sober. She had got in contact with me and so she had written me this letter saying that she wanted uh, to sign annulment papers and I just bristled. I mean, I, <laughs> I had this resentment of my wife. This was one of the two people on my resentment list I was never going to make an amendments to, right? <laughs> and something weird happened because as I'm listening to her, I'm thinking, I'm never going to sign you. are going to be stuck with your name being married to me for the rest of your life. And I'm saying this to myself and all of a sudden... Something in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous kicked in, and it was kind of that, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, you know what? Let it go. And this had been 13 years of of drinking Mm. at this woman and then getting sober and refusing to want to uh, have anything to do with her and making amends, right? So at that instant... Mm -hmm. God did for me what I could not do for myself because what came out of myself was, sure, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And I signed those annulment papers and I sent them back to her and I've never had another thing to do with her. But that's the best of the best kind of amends I could ever make. That was the only kind of thing I could ever make. We both got married too young. We got married. We had both oh, yeah. screwed the pooch literally on our marriage and we both had... Uh, things to to be responsible for but since there had been so much time that had elapsed the only thing that would have made her feel any better about what had happened between us was me to be able to do this and I know that now but I didn't know that at the time it was such a weight off my shoulders when I said yeah I'll do that it was like all that hatred and all that that resentment and all that weight of carrying that around that just evaporated in an instant and it was like oh my god this stuff works but I often wonder about that kind of thing, Lee. Whenever I hear people talk about it, and I've had sponsees who swore that they would never make certain amends. What was the pressure like from within when you were sitting there with an undone amend? What was it like living with that? Did you acknowledge that that was something that was bothering you, or did you find a way to ignore it or compartmentalize? Or what was your response to how you were feeling about not doing it? Mm. When I did my my fourth and fifth and and the eight step list, um, I, I kind of categorized uh, those people who oh, I had done more wrong to them than they had done to me. And there were there were two people who had done mm-hmm. much more wrong to me than I had to them, and one of them was my ex-wife. And so I refused to make amends. Those were the two people that I never wanted to make amends to. So I justified it. Why would I want to make amends to that person who'd hurt me so badly? So you said you were sober. How long before you actually made the amend to your first wife? I believe it was about two years into sobriety i think i had just come back from england Mm. bury my dad and Mm -hmm. so it it was probably about six months after that that she had sent me this letter um from the archbishop asking for me to to uh, go give the go-ahead for them to annul the marriage 
So was the annulment, uh, was was that the major part of that amends, or did you actually get with her and, and do a classic type of amend? No, that was the only... I, I really didn't want to see her. I realized in that moment that the best thing I could do was to not engage with her anymore um, mm-hmm. and give her what she wanted. And mm-hmm. that that would take that that would be the form that the amends would take, and there was, there was something I knew about that being correct. There was there was a feeling, a hunch, an intuition, if you will, that you know if I was going to by by trying to contact her and doing a face to face direct mm-hmm. amends, I would be muddying yeah. the waters. There would be some unfinished thing that would come up, and this was a way of getting it closure and to let go. I had to let go of the hate. Two and a half years isn't so bad uh, for making an amend. Were you prodded by a sponsor to do it or by what you were hearing in meetings about other people doing theirs? Was there anything that was kind of giving you the sense that I probably ought to do this sooner than later before she actually contacted you? Uh, the honest truth to that is no. I, I, you know, I had told my sponsor that I, I didn't know where she was, which was the truth. I did not, uh-huh. um, and that I didn't want to do it anyway. And he said, "Well, you know, um, basically, you know, God will do for you. <laughs> you know, God, God will find a way, kind of thing. Or you never know what might happen. Or you know, what sponsors yeah, say yeah. to their, their sponsees is, um, you never know, right? And so yeah, this yeah. this thing kind of came out of the blue." And uh-huh. I was given that, that, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy moment? And yeah. I picked the I want to be happy moment. And as I say, the relief that I felt confirmed to me very quickly, immediately, if we will, that uh, that was the right thing to do. That's great experience to pass on, especially to sponsees and other people, mm-hmm. uh, to, to know that deep down inside that what you did actually gave you relief and gave you uh, the feeling of having done it in the way that needs to be done. I want to talk a little bit about your early days in AA. And when you finally got to the point at which things got bad enough for you that you said, I, I got to get I got to get sober. Did you go to treatment or did you go straight to AA? What were the first several months like for you getting sober and then going into AA? Uh, I did not go to treatment. My last drunk, if you will, ended me up in uh, University Hospital in San Antonio. Mm. Uh, I came to. uh, Mm -hmm. I was on a gurney. I was strapped down with leather restraints uh, Mm. across my uh, stomach and my arms and my legs were tied down. Uh, I had a couple of IV drips going. I was black and blue. And I had absolutely no idea how I'd gotten there. And the first thought that came to my mind was, how did somebody like me end up like this? <laughs> oh, my God. And I, to this day, there were, there's, there's many, many nights that before previously to that that uh, I don't remember. They had asked me what date I thought it was. And the last date I could remember was uh, February 17th because it was a few days after Valentine's Day. I had done this kind of this rodeo before that, uh, you know, I figured, well, I may have missed a night or two. And so I'll just say the 20th or the 21st. And I came up with that February 25th. Well, they said, well, no, it's March the 8th which is my sobriety day, which is how uh-huh. I know what my sobriety day is. And I was yeah, absolutely yeah. flabbergasted that I knew nothing of the preceding two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, not much of that two weeks has been revealed to me. So you didn't know how you ended up in the hospital? I have no idea how I ended up in the hospital. A car crash or a fight or... 
None at all. I guess that no, 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 no. I'm I'm assuming the EMS must have bought me, and somebody must have uh, pulled the uh, the emergency cord on um, you know my whereabouts. Uh, huh. Perhaps my uh, my daughter. Do- I had a daughter by that time with a, a, a woman who um, probably was the source of calling the uh, authorities and having uh-huh. an EMS come by. But I don't know that for sure. So I ended up in hospital and I checked myself up out against medical advice. I went home. I, went, I, I felt like I was dying. I really did. Huh. Literally, physically felt like I was dying. And, and mm-hmm. that was the end. And I wanted to go home and be in my own bed. But I decided to try to detox. I bought a bunch mm-hmm. of Gatorade. Um, I went to bed. I slept. I drank Gatorade. I shook. I sweated. I did the things that you do when you go through detox. I had... I think I had a stash of Xanax at some point that I managed to wean myself off of the alcohol, but I was in pretty bad shape. Had you ever tried getting sober before that you knew about? Not getting sober, but I mean, I knew how to get, I knew how to get off the alcohol. Detoxing. But I didn't stay sober, Uh, but I could get through the DTs by myself. I had done that several occasions. That was in that five-year period where things really were going downhill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've probably done it three or four times previously, and so I knew the drill. When you went home after the hospital, mm-hmm. and you figured that you were going to either get sober or die, whatever your choices were at that point, did you have a feeling that this time would be the time, or or uh, did you have any inclination that this would be any different than any other time? No, actually, I felt pretty hopeless. I felt more really? hopeless and more despair. And I mean, you know, we talk about the uh, gift of desperation. I was, I oh, yeah. was absolutely desperate and scared stiff. Um, and and had and knew that I could not stop by myself. I knew I could get through detox, but I didn't think that I could possibly hang on to any form of sobriety. I don't think I thought mm-hmm. in terms of sobriety at that point. I didn't know life without alcohol. It's like I, I, I had no conception if you will of what life might be like without without putting alcohol into my system so i i felt completely hopeless yeah uh, and i think that was the first time i think that's what the different was difference was for me that i i'd kind of given up and uh, you know we talk about surrender but it, and it was my idea of surrender perhaps it was my way of experiencing that and yeah. uh, it was that complete lack of, of belief that anything was ever going to be okay mm. you know we talk about god things in, in aa and i truly believe that you know um God brought me to AA and AA brought me to God because what happened to me in answer to your question is that there was a knock at my door and I was I had probably three days out of the hospital and mm-hmm. I'm still shaky and I still had that cheap mm-hmm. pop of vodka pouring out my pores yeah. um, I stank so this gentleman had heard through my my child's mother that I had been drinking myself to death and mm. this gentleman from AA was visiting from Michigan. His name was Al. It was the first time I'd seen him. He mm-hmm. knocked on my door and he said, perhaps you might like to come to an AA meeting with me. Mm. And I was, like I said, I was so beaten down and so desperate. I said, okay. Mm. I mean, I'd heard of AA. I didn't really know what it was about. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay. And so I went with this gentleman and mm-hmm. went to a meeting on the west side of San Antonio, one of the barrios. It was a little church. 
I went into this meeting and I sat down and I was rocking back and forth on my hands just to because I was shaky. I was I was yeah. literally you know coming apart at the seams and felt awful. My, my, my I had to wear sunglasses indoors because the light mm. hurt my eyes. As I say, mm-hmm. I, I was you know I stank of vod- cheap yeah, vodka, real mess. Huh? Uh, yeah, and so I sat there. And I watched and I remember seeing all these people sitting around the middle table, um, you know, the, the, the people who were really part of AA. And I'm sitting on the side with this, this, this gentleman. And the lady who was uh, chairing the meeting, leading the meeting that night, she walked in and she was probably a few years older than I am. Um, mm-hmm. And she had a very nice hairdo, and she was had some jewelry on that was very, mm-hmm. um, you know, nice. Not 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 too much blamed, but very very sophisticated, very well dressed. And she had a tinkle in her. She was I could hear her laughing, and I could hear that tinkle in her laugh. And she just had this smile on her face, and she just radiated happiness. Hmm. And so she sat down at the t- table, and she started the meeting. And when she opened her mouth. I heard an English accent came out of this woman's Oh, mouth. my gosh. And I looked at the gentleman who had bought me, and I said, that lady's from England. And he said, yes, she is. He said, I've been visiting for the last couple of weeks, and she's an English lady, and she's a regular at this meeting. He said, I will introduce you to her after the meeting is over. And I don't remember what they said at that AA meeting. I was too far gone. But I remember that woman, and I remember going up to her with this gentleman at the end of the meeting, and she looked at me. And she she said, you don't ever have to feel this way again. Then she said something that changed my life. She said, you're going to come to the meeting tomorrow night, aren't you? And she gave me the address and she told me the time. And if it had been an American that said that, I don't know what I... I mean, I probably would have gone, I don't know. But, but the fact that she was an English woman, and it turns out she had been born and raised about five, ten miles away from my, the place I had been born and raised in, <laughs> met her in the barrios of San Antonio in a little church. Now, if that's wow. not a God thing, I don't know what it's because yeah, I tell you real what, at 8.15 the next night, I was at that meeting she had told me about, and mm-hmm. I went to that meeting for the first year of my sobriety. I went, her and her husband, that lady, uh, she's still sober, her name's Terry S. Uh, That lady and her husband took me under their wing, and they took me to AA meetings. They introduced me to my first sponsor. They protected me. They loved me Mm -hmm. until I could love myself, as they say. Um, And they introduced me to the concept of AA. And what's more important, they they introduced me to the concept of service. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Terry was very big on was doing uh, service work, and she was very yeah. big in the correctional facilities. Um, and so she introduced me to my first sponsor. One of his prerequisites to sponsor me was that I would go to the jails with him in the TDCJ, uh, wow. go down to uh, the Dolph Briscoe unit in Dilly, Texas, mm-hmm. every every mm-hmm. Monday night. And we did mm-hmm. that. And early sobriety, uh, I would I would hate going, and then I would feel a sense of gratitude at the end of the meeting when we came out of the jail, um, and then I would be on cloud nine coming back, and I did that for a long time. And so, you know, I jumped into AA with both feet. I, I heard my stories in AA. I mm-hmm. related to the people in AA. 
Uh, I knew I was at home in AA. I heard, you know, I felt for the longest time that nobody had done the things that I had done or felt the way I had felt or thought the way I thought, right? Mm-hmm. And then I go into AA and I'm, I'm in a room full of them wherever I go. The only thing that I had problems with early on in sobriety was the God thing, the concept yeah. of a higher power. That took a lot longer for me to kind of um, get a hold of and wrap my, wrap my feelings around and wrap my brain yeah. around. You know, for the longest Did time, it, it was good orderly direction and group of drunks. Oh, yeah. And that, sustained, yeah. that sustained me for long enough. Yeah, so it was one of those things that you had to prove to yourself through the things that were happening that God was doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Somewhere along the way, the things that you were doing and the guidance you were getting. Yeah. I'm a slow learner, Howard. Um, at nine months, it became very apparent to me that, in fact, th- there was a higher power at work in my life. So it was Christmas, and so I had sobered up in March, and it was coming around to Christmas, and uh-huh. uh, there was a, I had gone to a, a midday meeting, and they were going to have an eating meeting so that they were going to have a potluck after the mm-hmm. 12 o'clock, right? So at sure. 1 o'clock, they were going to have this, this potluck dinner. And I'm sitting next to the table where the food's been stored, okay, or placed, mm-hmm. And the meeting starts, and the meeting is about this concept of a higher power, about God doing for you what you can't do for yourself. The idea that there is something at work that's greater than you. And I listened, and I listened. I just was not getting this idea. I didn't understand what they were talking about. And at the end of the meeting, and it's it's volunteer in San Antonio, at the end of the meeting, I stuck up my hand and I said, you know, I'm not getting this. I don't get it. I've been sober nine months. I, nothing's happening along this line of mm-hmm. finding this higher power. I'm not doing this. I don't get step three. I'm really not getting step two. I said, all I'm thinking about right now is having a slice of this cherry pie that's sitting on the end of this table. <laughs> and something in the back of my head just like the light bulb came on it was like for nine months I had not thought about putting alcohol in my system and the only craving I had was for a piece of cherry pie and I realized at that moment that this was working for me that AA had worked for me for nine months and I hadn't even realized it you know before I had walked into the rooms of AA Mm -hmm. I could not go 24 hours without putting alcohol in my system I had proved it and even when I didn't want to drink I couldn't stop and since I staggered into that first meeting where I met that English lady, it had not been necessary to put alcohol in my system again. And it took nine months for that idea to filter through my thick skull. But at that particular moment, when I was craving that piece of cherry pie and not craving a bottle of Jack Daniels, it became very apparent to me that, that something was at work in AA that I had no control over it was nothing to do with me and that I I was being I was being taken care of what a marvelous revelation that must have been for you at that point. I didn't get that until I, it was probably 18 months, until I had done the steps with the sponsor who was very God-focused. My first year, I, I was on my own, and I didn't have a sponsor. And, and there's a lot to be said for being guided into a spiritual path. So you did it in nine months. I finally got it around 18 months. And 
the important thing is we got it when we got it. So your program, I, I'm assuming your program became energized from that experience. Uh, actually, my program started from that point. I was just going to meetings and enjoying the camaraderie and, uh-huh. the, and the fellowship. And, the, you know, I was, I was learning about AI. I guess I was auditing it. But at that point, I think I realized that it was either time to do the steps and um, you know, get serious about it because uh, I was just kind of I, mm-hmm. I was given this that nine months of grace. I believe God mm-hmm. gave me a nine month grace period just to become part of AA in the fellowship. And mm-hmm. I, you said you had worked the steps before your spiritual awakening. I think I got that spiritual awakening in some form or another before I even started to work the steps. I got that realization that God was working in my life in dealing with my alcoholism before I got to start the steps in earnest. So I didn't really start the steps for about nine months. So How much more comfortable you must have been, though, working the steps with that in your in your hip pocket than I was starting out trying to work the steps without belief. So I get that. In the last 26 years, what have been some of the milestones for you in sobriety? I know that you moved from San Antonio to Houston at some point, but what are some of the things that stick out to you in two and a half decades of, of sobriety? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And so many good things. You mentioned uh, the fact that I moved. Um, I was 15 years sober and my boss in San Antonio came to my office one Friday afternoon said, uh, we are going to sell your department to a company, a much bigger company in Houston. Uh, the good news is that they want you to go with them. The bad news is that there's no room for you here if you don't want to go. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I will tell you that probably moving in sobriety uh, was one of the most difficult things that I have experienced in sobriety because it was like becoming a newcomer all over again. Mm-hmm. I had a, a big network of people in San Antonio that I knew that I was, um, you know, had that, that fellowship with and all of a sudden mm-hmm. that was going to be gone. And I had to hmm. come to Houston and start over again. And at least I knew the drill, but it still felt very odd being kind of a newcomer in a new, new city. Did you have a hiatus from AA during that period of time where you were trying to get acclimated? No, I, I don't more so into AA. In fact, it, reached, it, re, it, booted my, it it boosted my program a lot. I knew that if I wanted to stay sober uh, or at least be sane, um, mm-hmm. I would have to redouble my efforts. And so when mm-hmm. I got here, I went to two meetings a day if I could. I, you know, I stuck my hand up whenever people say, does anybody want to share? It was very unusual. It was a hard concept for me to get used to this idea of being called upon rather than volunteering. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to a meeting and I had not shared in a meeting for several meetings, maybe a week or two, and I got here. And finally, somebody at a meeting said, does there anybody want to share? And my hands stuck up in the air and I just (laughs) let go. And I said, I don't know anybody here, but I want to share and here it is. And so, uh, and I got to know people. I I just knew to stay close. I knew to stay 
to, to reach out to people and say, hey, I need help. And I, mm-hmm. asking for help is still the most difficult thing for me to do in sobriety, right? Oh, yeah. But I knew that that's what I had to do. So I mm-hmm. doubled my efforts when I moved here to, from, from San Antonio. So other things that have happened in my life, I think, you know, losing my dad was the first major thing that, that cropped up. That was about a year and a half. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my daughter becoming a dad and becoming a real dad the blessings that come with becoming a good parent and seeing somebody grow up and become successful in their own right mm-hmm. and have a good relationship with a grown adult child that was such a gift for me i can remember one particular incident my daughter was probably about 10 maybe 11 i was five six years sober basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting at the breakfast table, and she was having trouble with her math homework. And mm-hmm. we were sitting there trying, I was trying to explain it to her, and I was getting frustrated, and I was getting mm-hmm. more and more frustrated. And then I started to get angry, and then my voice started to raise. <laughs> and there was this, this moment of clarity when I said to myself, I could hear, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. I said to myself, yeah. you are becoming your dad. Stop it. And I made a decision at that particular instant to not engage in trying to make her do her homework right. Okay? If if that makes any sense. Sure. I, I left her alone. And so um, the immediate upshot of that is she, she struggled with math for a bit. And if she got a C, I'd say, well, did you try your best? And she'd say, yes. And I, I'd say, okay. Uh-huh. And, and I would not demand that she get A's and B's and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And the next semester she went to, to school, her math mm-hmm. was back on track. You know, it was like she was getting good grades. And so uh-huh. that hands-off, that do-nothing, the do yeah. nothing then rest mentality kind of thing because doing nothing is so hard for me to do that do nothing has served me so well in not only building a relationship with my daughter from that point on mm-hmm. but in life in general um, I think I want to go ahead and fix things I want to go ahead and take action to solve a problem that's that's my nature mm-hmm. but sometimes the best thing to do is to, to let things be you know pause when agitated if you will but uh, on a longer term is just stop just let it let it unfold the way it's supposed to be unfolding and don't try to um, manipulate and justify and get things the way you think it's supposed to be even if you're even if your intentions are good right yeah I think just leaving things alone when you don't really know what to do it's hard to get comfortable with that though Lee and and I've often found that I'm pretty good at does it need to be said does it need to be said now do I need to be the guy saying it and I keep my mouth shut and it's kind of uncomfortable for a little while but looking back I can always see where that was the right thing to do. So I've had a glean comfort intellectually after the fact to the point that now when I do hold my tongue or I don't say what I'm thinking in a hurtful way or whatever, I can do that more proactively and know that it's the right thing to do. Sounds to me like you've you've had that kind of experience too. Absolutely. And as you say, it's very hard to do. And still to this day is very, very difficult to stop and just say, okay, I don't know what to do. Uh, The best thing I can do is to leave that alone. That doesn't come naturally to me. And still to this day Mm -hmm. is, is sometimes, it's not my first thought, but it sometimes will be my second thought if I'm lucky. And usually it's like a third or fourth thought is to say, okay, stop, just stop. Yeah. 
especially when we find ourselves with grown children, I mean, adults in their late 20s and 30s, that they come to visit or they come to stay and how easy it is to slide back into that parental role that, you know, the time to have influenced their life in the way that I think I still can, that time came and went mm -hmm. 15 years, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> and I have to remind myself of that. So your daughter, she's a grown woman now. Yeah, she's 32 years old. She's a practicing attorney in San Antonio. She, she remained in San Antonio when I got uh, transferred to Houston. So you've you've stayed, so that was at about five years, you said, of sobriety. A lot of things happened to me recently. So that's just yeah. before COVID. Um, I've been dating somebody in Brenham. Right. And we had met in a meeting in Houston um, mm -hmm. and corresponded for a little bit. And we kind of saw each other for a little bit. And then we started dating seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I would run up one weekend and she would come to visit me the next weekend and so on. And mm -hmm. we saw each other during the week once in a while. And I was getting on for retirement age. And so I started to plan retiring and didn't really know when I was going to pull the plug on that. And I think you and I had actually talked about it. You know, you had given me some, some good feedback on that. And so I, I had been working towards it. Both of us had wanted to take our relationship further. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, you know, one of the gifts of, of AA and another gift is the ability to be in a healthy relationship. It took me a long time to figure out, mm -hmm. you know, what a healthy relationship looked like. I was given a gift of figuring that out. I met somebody. Mm -hmm. um, we had to go slow because of the distance. And at some point in my um my career, um, I realized I wasn't enjoying what I was doing anymore and that I was ready to pull the plug. And, uh, you know, I had been worrying up until that point about whether it was the right time. And one mm -hmm, morning I mm -hmm. woke up and I knew intuitively it was the right time. And I have not looked back since. So upshot of retiring is that I got to move to Brenham and uh -huh. be with my sweetheart. And uh, although we're not married, um, we are committed. We're in a committed relationship. We've both been married before, and it yeah. wasn't something that was particularly um, on our, either one of our radar. We weren't really. I certainly I wasn't looking for um, a relationship when when we met, and I don't uh -huh. think she was either. And so, yeah. as things progressed, um, we had talked about, you know, well, what does that look like? Marriage? Well, it's not necessary for you. It's not necessary for me. Uh, let's just uh -huh. roll with it and you know we've talked about you know down the road we may we may take that plunge and um it's not something we feel that we should, any undue pressure to do but we might do it just because we want to do it and i think that's the right reason we do the things that married people do mm -hmm. we, we commit committed to each other we're raising children together um you know we we have we have our uh, things that are, um, you know, deal breakers and for, the, for everything yeah. else is we'll, we'll work through it and uh, uh, make the relationship work. We practice the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous in our mm -hmm. relationship. She is one of our um, members too. And so mm -hmm. we try to bring the traditions that we learn in AA into our relationship. Like our common welfare should come first. The um, well-being of the relationship comes before the well-being of each of us as individuals. And, and we live by that. We try to live by that. We don't always succeed, yeah. but that's always in the back of our minds. 
And yeah. so the only the only requirement for this is to desire to be in the relationship. Do we want to be in the relationship? Absolutely. So we can apply traditionally uh, the things that we we learn in AA in the program yeah. of recovery into the into our relationship, and it's beautiful. It, it sounds beautiful. I mean, it's a remarkable realization that a good marriage is built out of that very thing and how easy on a daily basis it must be for you to acknowledge God's presence in your relationship along with mm-hmm. everything else in your life, huh? Uh, absolutely. Um, that part of the traditions also is, is, you know, loving God as we understand Him. And so, you know, that is been fundamental I think in mm-hmm. any success that we've had in, in this blossoming thing it's ongoing I mean wow. um, we, we continue to grow and so um, you know I, I attribute everything that's good that's happened in my life um, to either directly being sober or the uh, blueprint for the design for living that I've learned in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because yeah. um, you know I have no clue how to behave I mean I yeah. still have no clue my first instinct is to react right yeah. my first instinct is how does that affect mm-hmm. me yeah. yeah my second thought today due to the fact that I'm in recovery right. is that okay what's the right thing to do what is the next right thing what is what should I do what would Howard do what would yeah. Jesus do whatever you want to do what 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 does it look like to be a man in recovery does this lend itself to me becoming the person that I want to be or not and if mm-hmm. the answer is yes, then you know it's the right thing to do. And if it's not, then you better think twice about doing it. You know, my old sponsor in San Antonio used to say, Lee, you can do anything you want if you're prepared to take the consequences. Yeah. And I, I, I believe that 100%. That has been a guiding light in my life. Is that Do I want to pay the consequences for my actions today? After unpacking so much of your life for us, you've repacked it in a really wonderful way about the impact of AA on your life on your relationships, on your way of thinking. Everything seems to be nicely arranged for a man to live a good, sober life. And I see you doing that. You have a certain peace and serenity about you. And I've always thought, well, maybe it's that English uh, reservedness uh, or, you know, that kind of understated stiff upper lip. But after hearing your whole story, it gives me an incredible sense of knowing the man behind the legacy, let's say. This has been um, a really great way for us to reconnect after having not talked in a little while. We, we talked yeah. from time to time. I think last time I called you, it was to get the name of a, a barber oh, that you right. used. Oh, that's right. Did you something. ever get a haircut? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Thank goodness for that. My hair got pretty much out of control. At first I said, I am not going to cut my hair until they find a cure for this uh, thing. And my hair went so out of control that I, I finally had to find some other cause to get behind. <laughs> it was <laughs> That was, I guess, the last time we talked. But this has been a really fine opportunity that I'm so glad I was able to have you enjoy with me, and I hope it was enjoyable for you as it was for me. It was very enjoyable for, for me, Howard. Just sitting here conversing with you is just, you know, we just yeah. do the deal the best of our ability, and, and we're rewarded so much more for, for our efforts. So it's wonderful to see you my friend it's good seeing you and thanks so much for doing this all right howard i'll see you soon well my friends that's it for this episode of aa recovery interviews thanks to lee p for sharing his story and thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed aa recovery interviews will you help me spread the word by recommending it to as many people as you know 
That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you leave a multi-star review wherever you get this podcast, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and other podcast providers. You can tell Siri, Google, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You can visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.